0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at AdventBirmingham.org. Well, we'll get started with our um, faithful few. I thought, you know, if I threw in Dragon Slayer, maybe someone would come, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yeah, you could have got our female yeah, Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if only they'd put the art in the um, order or the, yes, or the adventurer. Um, So thank you all for coming. Um, We're going to just go ahead and get started because of time, and I'm probably trying to do too much, but we'll see how it goes. Um, So I started studying Martha a year ago, and, and some of you already know this, but... Um, ended up being what started out as speaking at a women's event on Martha. Um, com- I just felt compelled to keep studying Martha, and so that led me on a kind of journey, asking, "Well, how has Martha been received in church history?" Led me to a medieval legend, and it was just fascinating to see those, uh, to, to see the legend and what I was reading in scripture kind of come to life. And so it culminated in an article with Christianity Today and now with this class, because I thought, if I can't bring this to my church, then, <laughs> then what am I doing here? Because um, it, these, these kinds of things that you study, you want it to um, help the, your local church. So that is the, what this class is about. So we'll be looking at John 11 and the medieval legend. Um, and then I'll make some conclusions. Um, I'm going to pray, but before I do, I just want to give this statement here at the beginning so you know exactly what I'm trying to communicate and what I'm, uh, my goal is with the class. Um, the class obviously is in one sense about Martha. I, w- I would love for us to have a new perspective of Martha than what at least I grew up with. Um, and that was Martha, the busybody, the warrior, the warrior, not W A, <laughs> <Or, laughs> um, the 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 disciple who just doesn't get it, you know. Um. So on the one hand, we do want I do want a different picture of Martha that I think Scripture gives us. Um. But this class is more than just Martha. It's about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? So I want to propose that in Martha, we are given an example of what a dynamic Christian disciple looks like through her belief, her confession, and her service. So we're gonna tease tease that out. Um, but let's pray before I say anything else. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and that your presence is with us um, in your son Jesus Christ and through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your disciples like Martha. And we ask God that you would humbly teach us more about you and what it means to be a follower of you, um, through, uh, Martha today. And Lord, I pray that you would take my words and conform them to your word, namely Jesus Christ in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. Amen. So we're going to look at John 11, and one of the handouts has scripture text in case you didn't bring your Bible with you or you just want to look at that. I thought that we would start with Luke 10. I just don't have, we don't have time to look at Luke 10, but how many of you, when you think of Martha and Mary, think of the account in Luke's gospel of Martha and Mary? That has been my... Um, uh, I would say, formative shaping uh, text, a view of Martha. Um, that's what I've heard preached and taught on so much with Martha and Mary. And as I've already said, it was kind of put to, to me like, be less like Martha, be more like Mary. Um, but in John 11, I think we're given a, a portrait of Martha that actually shows how her discipleship has progressed from what we read in Luke 10, which is earlier in Jesus's ministry, to John 11, which is a little bit later in Jesus's, much later in Jesus's ministry before the triumphal entry. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through um, John 11 and I'm just going to make observations about the text. I kind of feel like a um, tour guide bus driver, like in London, the double decker, he's just pointing out sites. With the expectation, you'll go back and spend all day at one of the sites. So I encourage you to go back and spend more time in John 11 and Luke 10. But um, let's read John 11 together, and then I'll uh, pause and make some comments along the way. Uh, So beginning in verse 1, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So John's readers would have already known the story about Mary um, anointing Jesus' feet. And in fact, John's going to repeat the story or tell the story in John 12. Um, but they have heard this story about Mary, and so Lazarus is, I mean, John is saying, Mary, that Mary that you've heard about, it's her brother Lazarus who is sick, and it's her sister Martha that is going to um, come to the forefront in this story. And so in verse 3, the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Um, in John's gospel, who is the one more often than not is told or spoken of as the, the one who Jesus loves, the disciple who Jesus loves? John, the one writing. Um, so it's interesting, you know, in verse 3, the sisters um, uh, don't say Lazarus. They say the one you love is sick. Now, we know that Jesus loves all people. God is love, right? Um, but I think uh, John, the, the um, author of this text, Uh, Wants us to hear, and we're going to hear it again in verse five, that God loves this family, and I think that's yes. So, someone on the basis of that suggested that Lazarus actually was the gospel. Interesting. Yeah, I don't agree with (laughs) (laughs) it. Interesting. Well, I think uh, theologically, I think uh, it's significant in that here, in the in the midst of suffering and death, I think John wants us to know. Or those who think it's Lazarus who wrote it, (laughs) that God loves this family. Um, I think that's a really important theme. Um, So in verse 4, when Jesus heard this message, he said, "'This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it.'" And this theme of glory is going to come back up again Um, But we don't know if Martha and Mary heard what Jesus said. We don't know if this message gets back to them. But the disciples hear it. John hears it, and he records it for us. Um, He's telling us uh, how Jesus is interpreting what is happening here for the disciples. This is for the glory of God. And then in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Now John makes an editorial comment Jesus didn't love just Lazarus. He loved Martha, and she is singled out by name here at the beginning. Um, in the legend that we're going to discuss, it, it, it notes this verse and says that it was rare for uh, someone to be singled out by name who Jesus loved. So it's an important um, part of this story. So Jesus loves his family. Verse 6, this is uh, <laughs> my human um, tendencies. This verse does not make any sense. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So you would think uh, when Jesus says, this isn't gonna end in death, verse five, Jesus loves his family. You would almost expect verse six, so Jesus gets up and goes. Um, But no, he delays and it's an intentional delay. Um, And I think it's important again, that John wants us to know that his delay did not mean his lack of love for this family. Um, and I think that's, that happens in all of our lives, right? Sometimes we don't understand why God is delaying or um, why he's not answering a prayer yet, especially how we're praying. We never know exactly how God is at work, but we can trust that he loves us and that he is at work, um, which is what is happening here in this text. And so then in verse seven, after the two days, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And I'm gonna summarize this next section so when Jesus says this, the, uh, the disciples say, Rabbi, why are we going back to Jerusalem? You almost got stoned. You were almost killed. Like, why are we going back there? And, and Jesus says, well, Lazarus is asleep and I need to wake him up. And so the disciples take him literally, well, if he's asleep, then he'll just wake up. And then Jesus tells them plainly, no, Lazarus has died. And actually, you know what? It was good that we weren't there in order that you might believe. And then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Yeah, let's go with him so that we can die with him, so that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus does die, where do most of the disciples go? <laughs> Thankfully. Um, but Thomas, you know, makes this, uh, what seemingly is this great statement of faith. Let's go so we may die with him. Verse 17. So Jesus um, arrives. He finds that Lazarus has already been dead in the tomb for four days. So this isn't a he may be dead, or maybe we can resuscitate him. No, he's he's decomposing. He's starting to stink. Um, he's been dead for four days. Um, and then in verse 20, As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Um, it's funny, if thinking of this passage in light of Luke 10, you know, for whatever reason, Mary's always uh, pictured sitting <laughs> and at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's the one going out um, to to address Jesus. And um, so Mar- Martha goes out to meet him, and then Martha just says to Jesus, and I resonate with this so much. She begins with, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Like, Lord, where were you? Why weren't you here? A protest. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then she follows it up immediately with this um, confident statement in the character of God. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When I was reading this text, it reminded me of the Psalms, of some of the Psalms um, that begin with kind of a protest, a questioning of God. I think of like Psalm 10. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Or in verse 13, uh, Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But then both Psalms end with a statement about who God is for them. Psalm 10, uh, you are the one who helps the fatherless, you are the king forever and ever. But I have trusted in your faithful love. So here we have Martha saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. What did Martha have in mind? I have no idea. Because as we're going to see, I don't think she necessarily thought that he was going to raise her brother (laughs) right then and there. Um, But we're going to see this kind of, I believe, help my unbelief um, come back up again in Martha's story. And so Jesus responds to her. He engages with her in this conversation and says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha's response shows us that she was thinking of the future resurrection, which is what the Jews from the second temple period onward, um, most of the Jews believed at that time. She was a good Jew. She was um, confessing that she knows he will be raised at the last day. And then verse 25, and I love this because it's the linchpin. It's the theological interpretation of the events that are pl- about to take place. It helps us to understand how can this person, how can this Jesus raise Lazarus? Well, he tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, the resurrection isn't just a future event that's going to happen someday. Resurrection happens wherever I am because I'm the resurrection. I'm the resurrection event. I am the life. Dead things can't stay dead with me. Um, And it actually uh, anticipates what's going to happen after the cross and after his own death. He is the resurrection and the life. This is a divine revelation that he's given to Martha, of all disciples, of all people. He's telling her this. And then he says, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? It's an invitation. Do you believe this? And she responds with this great statement of faith. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. Um, this confession, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, um, is, is similar, very uh, close, close in language to Peter's confession that he gives in Matthew's Gospel. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And her confession follows um, several other confessions in the Gospel of John. Nathaniel, um, John the Baptist, Nathaniel, the Samaritan woman, Peter's confession. But it's almost like her confession is the penultimate one, the one that captures it all in fact we see later in chapter 20 of john's gospel when john tells us why he's written his gospel he says i've written these things so that you may believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name i think it's like echoes it's taking us back to john 11. Um, what john wants to accomplish in us in his in his uh, uh, first audience has already been accomplished in Martha. And Martha summarizes for us the confession that we too as Christians are to proclaim and that we do proclaim on a weekly basis. The other thing about her confession that I find interesting is that it is the summation of the apostles preaching. If you think about Acts 9, after Saul has been converted and he's in Damascus and he's sent out on this preaching ministry, it says in verse 20, in Acts 9, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, and here was his message, quote, he is the son of God. And then a few verses later in 22, but Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So these kind of twin pillars, Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah, is the summation of their apostolic ministry, For which then that they can talk about the meaning and the significance of his incarnation, uh, life, and his death and resurrection. It resides in who he is as Messiah and Son of God. Um, So going on then, after she makes that statement of faith, she goes and calls her sister Mary. Um, uh, Mary says, "This is the only time Mary speaks. You know, she doesn't speak in Luke ten. Lazarus doesn't speak because he's dead." Um, So, really, Martha's the one sibling for whom we have a dialogue with Jesus, a a, a long dialogue. But Mary repeats what Martha has already said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is moved to tears. He weeps. And then it comes to the time at the tomb. And this is where um, her story, uh, you know, at least for me, I was just like, yes, this great confession, Martha. And then at the tomb, when Jesus says, remove the stone, what does Martha do? She protests, Lord, uh, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. And, you know, the text doesn't tell us, but, you know, I just get the sense it's like she takes her eyes off of Jesus. Um, Her senses of the smell of her brother, perhaps, is so strong that she seems to waver. She seems to forget the confession she's just made and what Jesus himself said. Um, And so she protests, but then Jesus responds, graciously chiding her to believe. He doesn't give up on her. Didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they remove the stone. Again, I think Martha, like Peter, you know, Peter gets a lot of attention, rightly so, but you know, Peter, after his confession, protests Jesus and his ministry. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so you kind of see this pattern here, but it's just, I mean, it's the pattern of our daily lives, isn't it? I believe one minute just feeling so um, strong in our belief. And then the next minute we get the bill, the hospital bill. We have a friend who is sick. We, you know, the list goes on and we're we're smelling, we're looking at, we're touching suffering and death in front of us, and we waver. And it's, uh, help my unbelief. And Jesus is there helping us to keep on believing again and again. Another interesting thing, so right after this, he prays. And in his prayer, he says, um, I thank you that you've heard me. Um, because of the crowd standing here, I've said these things so that you, so that they may believe you have sent me. Um, Remember what he told his disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there in order that you may believe. Crowd, in order that they may believe. For whatever reason, he wanted Martha to believe before the sign. He was very interested that Martha believed before the raising of her brother. And specifically, she singled out as someone who he wanted her to see the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's Christ himself revealed for who he is. So she's just gonna see the person for who Jesus Christ, the Christ that she has um, uh, confessed for who he is. And then lastly, just another note about his prayer. Um, He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. It just makes me again think about what Martha said at the very beginning. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And there it's being repeated in his prayer. It's true. The Father and the Son together are one and the father listens to the son and the son listens to the father and then as we know Lazarus comes out the dead man is made alive in chapter 12 um, Jesus is said to come back to Bethany and y'all know the story it says Lazarus is now eating with Jesus Mary is of course at Jesus' feet anointing him and what does it say about Martha Martha was serving them I think it'd be easy to just kind of run past that and think of her like with her apron on, doing the dishes, you know, kind of insignificant service. But I think when we think about service in light of scripture, then it, our, our, our um, understanding of it changes because Jesus talks so much about service. Even in John's gospel, he's serving his disciples by washing their feet. He says, if you want to be the greatest of these, you must become the least. Service is an act of discipleship. It's, a, it's, it's faith being put into action, right? Serving the Lord and serving others. Um, and we don't have to divorce in our thinking service from like a word type based ministry. They go hand in hand. I think of in Acts, you know, the first seven deacons, um, two of them, we know Philip and uh, Stephen had an evangelism preaching ministry and they were serving. Um, so I think you have this more holistic, beautiful picture of Martha, the believer, the confessor, the servant, the hostess of Jesus, um, who, because Jesus loved her, starts with Jesus' love and the grace working, His grace working in her life, um, who, who, um, Jesus, who was, uh, patient with her and helping her to believe. Um, this is the picture of Martha that I would like us to see from scripture. Um, and, and I will say one other thing that it is, um, before we move on to the legend, um, that through the Holy Spirit, um, her confession is a sermon to us time and time again. And so when we join in with her words, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God. We are confessing, preaching that word out to others. Um, so that is John 11, very fast. Um, but what does this have to do with the medieval legend? And I have the artwork uh, from Christianity Today as at the beginning, but I also the reason I have this up here is I want to show you artwork throughout church history of Martha and the Dragon, because it's just weird and cool. Um, <laughs> so the legend of St. Martha. Well, what are medieval legends? I'm not a scholar, but I am going to quote from scholars here. Um, So this is coming from Sherry L. Reims, who wrote about um, Middle English legends of women saints. And she says that these legends, or writings that recount and celebrate the lives, deaths, and posthumous miracles of men and women who were recognized as saints, comprise one of the dominant literary genres in Europe, from late antiquity to the end of the Middle Ages. And she goes on to say that as modern readers, we might be frustrated when we read legends. And I would add to that as Protestants, we're gonna be frustrated. Um, and here's what, what she says. Um, she says, one will be continually frustrated if one expects the legends to provide sober, trustworthy biographies of individual saints. Most hagiographers were not disinterested historians, but preachers and publicists. Their chief goal was to glorify the memory of a particular saint generally for such practical purposes as strengthening the morale of the community, driving home some point of doctrine or morality, and winning new adherence to the saint's way of life. So these these, um, legends, I would say, uh, had several layers to them. One was just to drive pilgrims to the church, to the shrine. Um, They would make these claims, you know, we have the bones of Mary Magdalene or whoever. Um, so it was to bring pilgrims, but it also had a spiritual formation, um, goal in mind. So this medieval legend that originated in the 12th century, the 1100s, says, here's what it says about the purpose of this legend. St. Martha, the follower of Christ is considered a type of the Holy church because of her piety. And then moving down, it says, "In order that she might be an exemplum for pious imitation for the minds of the faithful." So the legends had um, a way of dramatizing what Christian discipleship should look like. And before we get dismissive of the legends, just think about how stories inspire us. You know, whether it's Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, um, uh, uh, oh L- Lewis's Lennon. Narnia, yes. Um, stories have a way to communicate truth, um, to the heart, really, more than maybe like a treaty, a, a theological treaty would, right? So, so that legends are kind of in that vein that they want to dramatize some of these, um, threads that we find in scripture. So what does a legend say about Martha? Now we'll say, of course, some of this is mythical. Some of this is um, not based on scripture, but I'm going to share um, a little bit of what it says. So it says that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were born a nobility. Um, so they had a lot of money. They inherited part of Jerusalem, Magdala, and Bethany. Um, and let me just note that a long time in church history, they conflated Mary Magdalene with Mary, Mary the Martha, uh, Mary the Martha. Uh, the sister of Martha, Mary. (laughs) So you may hear that come up. But here's what it says about Martha. From her childhood, she loved greatly the creator of all things, was highly skilled in Hebrew, and conformed to the precepts of the law. Martha had authority before all her relatives because she was more capable and had a greater abundance of intelligence and honesty. It mentions that she's beautiful and that she's a virgin, uh, but it's almost like passing remarks. And this is fascinating because most medieval legends about women focused, that was their focal point on the woman's virginity, her chastity, her ability to overcome sexual advances. With Martha, it's more like, yeah, she's these things, but that's not the point of the story. Um, instead, her, her legend kind of sounds like that of a male saint It's gonna focus on her courage and her ministry. So it goes on, and it spends a long time talking about Luke 10 and John 11. So here's how um, it interprets her from Luke 10. And I just love this language, so bear with me. It says, How happy and glorious this woman, whom Jesus loved so much, that he wished to be welcomed and fed by her. She received a great and wonderful guest, whom angels and men welcome and feed. She fed him who feeds all creatures one greater than he whom Abraham received as a guest, namely God and man, this great king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone encloses all in the palm of his hand, whom Job described as higher than the sky, broader than the greatest land, deeper than the sea, whom many prophets and kings wished to see and did not see. In Luke 10, before he goes to Martha and Mary, Jesus tells his disciples, you're seeing and hearing what kings and prophets wanted to hear and see, but did not hear and see. To hear, okay, so it says all that, and then it says, she received and fed this guest, this guest, this great king of kings and lord of lords. So it really um, holds her up as a a hostess of the king of kings, lord of lords. Um, It's really beautiful how it describes her role. In John, uh, John's gospel, and its explanation of John's gospel, it says a Martha related to her confession that she proved um, herself to have much more in common with Peter, the chief of the apostles, with Job, with Abraham, and with the Holy Virgin. And then it makes this claim. It says, in her sacred home, the Holy Church was formed. I think that's really beautiful. Okay, so now we get to the fun part. So after Jesus' death and um, resurrection and ascension, it says that the disciples were scattered. And that Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, along with some other disciples, were put into a boat on the Mediterranean without oars, with the intention that they would die at sea. They pray while they're at sea, and they're miraculously saved. And where do they land? But in France, because that's where all good medieval legends take place. So they land in France, and um, they are... Let me find this. Uh, They land at the River Rhone. Excuse me, I did not take French, so if I mispronounce any name, please, please forgive me. But they arrived at this river, and here's what it says. Then they approached the territory of Acts. After fasting and fervent prayers, they converted the unbelieving people to faith in Christ by means of miraculous signs and prophecies. The Lord gave the glorious Martha both the ability to heal all kinds of sickness and make holy prophecies. She was, as we say, physically beautiful, elegant and charming in appearance and highly eloquent and clear in speech. Her sermons were received by kings and nobles. She succeeded in converting a greater number of people than the rest of her companions." So this is um, uh, the picture of Martha that the townspeople along the River Rhone are hearing. They're hearing about what a great um, healer she is and preacher she is. And as they're evangelizing going up the river, they come to a place where there is a huge dragon. This is one of the earliest pieces of artwork that tries to depict the legend. Um, so they come and it, they, they plead with Martha to go out and defeat this dragon. Um, it says that it's destroying ships, that crowds of armed people have come and they haven't succeeded in slaying it. Um, many bears couldn't vanquish it. And then the legend says, when none of the inhabitants were able to destroy it in any way, and they heard reports of the reputation of St. Martha and her glittering miracles, how she casts out demons, they came and asked that she would drive away the dragon once and for all. Therefore, the holy friend of God went to the place. The hostess of Christ, confident in her true guest, discovered the dragon in the forest, devouring a man, which it had killed she threw holy water which she had brought on him and held up a wooden image of the holy cross says that the dragon was overcome like a sheep she took off her belt and bound it and then the townspeople killed it with their spears and so i'm going to pause here and show you the artwork throughout the years Um, and you can see in all of them the man being eaten kind of in the mouth and she's either having holy water in her hand or she's holding up a cross. And I'm just going to go kind of fast here. That one's a little bit more vivid. <laughs> this is in, I don't know if this is in a Bible, a book, um, but it's an illustration. This is a statue. Oops, let me go back. That's a statue where you can see the dragon is at her feet and she has the water. Now we're getting into the, maybe the 18th century. So what ended up happening from like the 15th century onward, they started celebrating a festival in Tarascon, France, um, with Martha defeating the dragon. So now there's a statue there, if if we want to take a pilgrimage as a group to France, um, and they have a yearly festival with this ugly monster that they parade down the streets. So that is, um, we'll stay at this slide. Um, so after the dragon's defeated, she stays in Tarascon and it says that she continues with many miracles. She starts a church, a con, a convent. She preaches. Um, I know we're out of almost out of time, but the one interesting story that the legend goes into detail about is that there's a man on a Christian man on the other side of the river who hears about her reputation and he wants to hear her and see her. And so he swims across the river. Naked. Now, why do medieval legends, they're so weird, like why do they include that detail? But they do. He swims across and gets swept up by current, drowns, and then they can't find his body for two days. They find it, they bring it to the shore, and then she lays next to him, making the form of a cross, prays that Christ would raise him like he raised her brother. And sure enough, he was raised and was able to then hear her preach. so it's, the, the legend itself is just fascinating. What I've given you is the golden legend account. This is the next century, so it's, it's condensed. You can see a little bit of changes, especially with related to the dragon. Um, but I just wanted you to have something to take home related to the legend. Well, what do we make of this? And I'm gonna conclude here. Um, well, let me say before I make this conclusion, what I do also love about the legend, this is really beautiful. Is that it ends with her death, and it makes this statement that Jesus, who was once her guest, now was going to become her host and welcome Martha as his guest in heaven with him. Isn't that beautiful? Really beautiful. So, what? How does this relate to Christian discipleship and to John 11? Uh, I want to read two things for you. One is just from First John, five. At the end of First John, so same same writer of the Gospel of John, he says, um, "We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one." That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Christians, um, as we read throughout Scripture, we are, um, there's this mystical union with Christ. Uh, there's a lot of language. We are hidden in Christ. Christ is our life. Um, we are in Christ. Uh, what does this mean? Well, that's what my husband can teach on next time. <laughs> Um, But I do think uh, what I see from Scripture is a participation with Christ, Jesus Christ, who is the true dragon slayer. And I want to end with Revelation 12. Um, This great dragon, and I'm just pulling an excerpt, uh, was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now it's come to salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. If we were to look at um, Psalm 74, Isaiah 27, we would uh, hear mention of Leviathan, ancient serpent, who, interestingly, the legend says that this dragon was the love child of Leviathan and this other medieval beast. But in Psalm and in Isaiah, it says that God has defeated Leviathan. And then we're told in Genesis that there's going to come one who's going to defeat the serpent. And then in Revelation 12, we're given a picture of a dragon who is the evil one. And he's been defeated by the blood of the Messiah, the blood of Jesus Christ. But where are we in all of this? We are the brothers and sisters who triumph over the evil one with Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, and by testifying to what Jesus has already done. And so what I want you to kind of see here is this picture of Martha holding up the cross is almost like reminding the evil one, look here, you've already been defeated. Look at what Christ has done for you. She's standing behind the cross and she's holding the holy waters of baptism, which I think reminds us of that mystical union. We've been buried with Christ. We've been resurrected to life in him. Um, and so I give thanks to God for um, using people like Martha in scripture and still today to remind us of not only the confession that we hold to God's gracious initiative um, uh, uh, in loving us and helping us to believe, but then also um, encouraging us that we are participants with him in the defeat of the evil one. Um, and so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your word. Whatever you want us to hear, I pray will stick. Whatever you don't want us to remember, I pray it would fade away. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.